Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Ontario Superior Court blasts the Ford government for saying that participants of the basic income shouldn't have expected that program to last for the full three years. I also catch up with councillors from Wards 5 and 7 on Hamilton City Council. And the U.S. lays charges against Huawei, leaving Canada stuck in the middle with no relief in sight. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, there's a legal theme, I guess, what we're talking about today. Uh, again, in Ontario Court yesterday in Toronto, the Ontario Superior Court uh, heard arguments about the basic income project. Now, you may remember, of course, this was a project that was instituted by the previous government. It was supposed to be a three-year pilot project, and Hamilton was one of the test cities. And uh, it was rolling along, and uh, during the election campaign, of course, uh, all three leaders, including Doug Ford, promised that they would continue the basic income pilot project, gather data, and then make a determination. He said that more than once during the campaign. Well, of course, Doug Ford became the premier not too long after that, and uh, within days, canceled the program. Well, a number of people have taken him to court. That uh, hearing started yesterday, and uh, it's, it's awfully hard to, to make a judgment uh, and a calculation based on, on the comments that we heard yesterday in court, but it's uh, it's rather interesting to hear the back and forth that went on between the government lawyers and uh, uh, lawyer Mike Perry, who we've had on the program before, uh, who's representing uh, some of the Lindsay area recipients. Joining us to talk about this is Tom Cooper, the director of Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Tom, uh, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us here today. Good morning, Bill. I don't. I don't want to, as I mentioned, Tom, read too much into this, but it was rather interesting the way that uh, the judges, and for those who don't understand how these things happen, there's a, there's a panel of judges, and uh, both legal teams, of course, will make arguments here. Uh, they did a pretty good job of picking apart the government's ideas here. It sure sounded like it. I unfortunately wasn't able to make it into Toronto yesterday. I had a commitment here in Hamilton yesterday afternoon. Didn't want to get caught in the storm, but. Uh, we did have a number of uh, local community advocates and uh, as well, importantly, basic income participants uh, take the GO train in and uh, sit in and listen to the arguments. And I know there were a number of other participants from, from Lindsay, Ontario, which is the other basic income pilot site. And to a person, they all said Mike Perry did a fantastic job of presenting the case. Um, not so good for the government's perspective, I think, though. Um, there seemed to be a lot of questioning from the judges, uh, and it's a panel of judges. It's three of them who um, who hear these sorts of judicial reviews. Um, there, there were questions uh, of, of the government's tactics and, and really its direction uh, in, in which they've taken this program uh, in, in terms of canceling it outright. Um, without really a whole lot of uh, communication to uh, to the participants themselves. And I think one of the other big factors that popped up during the hearing yesterday is um, for all these types of research projects that involve human subjects, uh, there needs to be ethical oversight. And so there's always put in place, whether you're doing it for drug testing or other sorts of, of research projects um, that involve people, um, uh, an independent review board. And uh, it came out uh, in the factum that the independent review board that was in charge of overseeing this basic income pilot, they're called Veritas and they're based in Montreal, uh, did not actually sign off on canceling the program. In fact, there was very little communication between the government 
and and this independent review board. So, well, there was they, one piece of communication, Tom. When when the board said this is not a good idea, they fired the board. Yeah, yeah, and that tells a whole message in itself. I think the um, the fact that uh, you know you need to when you're doing this type of research, and it's important to keep in mind this was a this was a pilot project. It was supposed to last three years. It was involving 4,500 people here in Hamilton, in Lindsay, and in Thunder Bay. And uh, so the, the rights of those people uh, who were involved in the project really needed to be looked after. And, and that's what Veritas was there to do. They're there to ensure their rights as, as research subjects, for lack of a better word, um, were protected. And, and that obviously didn't happen. And so they filed a complaint with the Ontario Ombudsman, um, but that complaint was pulled when um, when this legal action started. Well, there's a, a couple of interesting points here, back and forth, between uh, the uh, uh, the government lawyer, Mr. Thompson, and, and the judges. Uh, as you mentioned, their assertion, meaning the government's assertion, is simply, look, we're the government, we can do whatever we damn well please, you know, because we got duly elected, yada, yada, yeah. yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, and we don't need to pay no attention to no ethics board if we don't want to. And and, and and the judge, which, by the way, seems to be a theme of this government, but I digress. Uh, but the judges seem to say, well, yeah, you do. I mean, there are contracts signed here, and you just can't rip up contracts. Uh, which, by the way, Tom, is, is variations on another theme, because Doug Ford seems to think he can just rip up contracts, like he did with the the hydro deal, the cap and trade, yeah. uh, which cost them $118 million in, in fees because they had that canceled deal with the, the, the American company. So this is, this is, again, this is a mindset of this government that seems to be coming back to haunt them. Now, this hasn't been judged yet. We don't know. It's, this hearing is continuing. But the comments we heard from the judicial panel yesterday said, look at guy, you're not as high and mighty as you seem to think you are. Yeah, and, and those are the comments. And whether, uh, whether the judge's uh, perspective in terms of whether this was fair um, is, is one thing. Uh, is it legal, I think, is another question, and that's what we're going to find out. And um, does the, I, I think that comes down to the, really the root of the, of the question. Uh, does Cabinet have the ability, have the legal right to supersede uh, these sorts of ethical uh, contracts? And so I guess we'll find out. And uh, it, it's going to it's going to be extremely stressful. It's been extremely stressful for those basic income participants. I, I keep in daily touch with um, with a number of people who are are extremely worried about whether they're going to be able to keep their housing, um, where they're going to find enough money to uh, to cover food and other necessary expenses. As you know, Bill, uh, some of the participants had made, made plans to go back to school. Uh, they were hoping to get skills uh, upgrading at, uh, at, uh, at other institutions. And, you know, all that was thrown really under the wheels uh, when the Ford government canceled this program. And, and so people were harmed. Uh, I, th- I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, the the question comes back to uh, whether the government needs to be uh, kept to its promise during the election, and whether whether there is a legal obligation on uh, of cabinet to ensure that uh, the rights of these participants are protected. Yeah, no. Listen, I I don't want to delve too deep into the legalities of this because neither of us are lawyers. Uh, mind you, we talk so much about this stuff. I, I feel as if just by you know association, I'm starting to learn an awful lot about this. But as you mentioned, Tom, the way this program was laid out, 
Uh, it was not done in an arbitrary fashion. There were contracts that were signed with the participants in the trial and with the government and with, as you mentioned, this, this other board that was supposed to oversee this whole thing. And, and the government just seemed to pay no attention to that and just say, we don't care about the contracts. And uh, what little I know about these situations, you can't just walk around contract law and say, well, that we don't care about that because that's not the way we want to go. So there could be some ramifications. But I think the more telling point uh, was a, 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 an exchange between, again, the government lawyer, Mr. Thompson, and uh, Justice uh, Julie Thorborn, who's a member of the panel. Uh, Mr. Thompson's argument was, well, we just plain scrapped the plan because uh, we, meaning the government, uh, do not want to uh, spend $17 billion every year for the low-income Ontarians in a plan. And and she rebutted and said, that's not the purpose of this was. This is a test program. Nobody's asking the government to give everybody a basic income. They said, carry on with this program, gather some data, and then make an informed decision with the group that's already there. They're not expanding it. The government, of course, is using big numbers to try to scare everybody off. There are no big numbers yet. Yeah, exactly. And we we suspect uh, that the basic income pilot will be successful. And and we've seen early indications of that with uh, really people being able to escape the cycle of poverty. But having said that, there was absolutely no commitment on behalf of the previous Liberal government or during the election, the the progressive Conservatives, to to continue the pilot beyond those three years. Um, But when you enter into these sorts of agreements, you have to you have to stay to your word. And, you know, people were promised uh, that they could participate in the project. They made life decisions based on on, on those uh, commitments. And um, to, to certainly say that uh, the government has no in, uh, intention of following up on the results of this pilot, no matter what, uh, what the research shows, is, is disingenuous at best. Uh, this particular pilot cost $150 million over three years. Um, I, I, I would imagine the majority of that's already been spent in terms of uh, signing up participants and putting in place the administrative oversight for it. Um, most uh, most participants now have had almost a year on the program, and they were promised a full three years. Um, so, so a lot of that money's already been spent, and and so we're really throwing away that investment if we don't continue the pilot. Um, There was a a very fulsome evaluation planned of the pilot that was uh, being run out of St. Michael's Hospital in in, uh, collaboration with McMaster University. Um, And really, as as you know, Bill, and we've talked about this numerous times, this was a project that was being watched all over the world. There's lots of different basic income ideas out there, and there are pilots... uh, currently running in Finland, they're launching some in, uh, in Scotland, in California, uh, they're talking about doing it in Chicago as well. So a lot of those jurisdictions were looking at Ontario and, and, and learning from us and, and just seeing how uh, our results uh, would impact the way they wanted to test basic income as well. And again, we're, we're delving into a, a little bit of legality here, but the fact of the matter is, is like I say, because contracts are in place. Uh, and we've talked, I know you know Mike Perry, who's uh, defending, of course, the people that brought this action in the first place. Mike's been a guest on the program. Uh, we, by the way, did reach out to him earlier today, but uh, he's kind of up to his uh, knees right now <laughs> in legal stuff. So he says, look, I'll talk to you guys after I finish this. But he's uh, he's obviously running the charge for this in the court. 
but the, the basic argument that they are making right now is this was a contractual agreement between these people that decided to be part of the program and the government, and you can't just walk away from contracts. So, uh, And they're not saying, as I say, to in- install this program on a, on a provincial-wide basis. What they're saying is you have to do something about contracts. Usually the, the word that's got to come up here at some point, if the judges rule in favor, is compensation. And as to how that's going to happen, we don't know at this stage. But from what Mike told us in previous conversations, Tom, and I wanted to get your read on that, that's basically what they're looking for. I mean, if you want to cancel the program, fine, but you can't leave people high and dry like this. Exactly. And and what participants are looking for is exactly what the government committed and what they as participants agreed to. We have to remember that it You'll re- you'll recall, Bill, when this program first got started, it, w- it was kind of tough to sign people up yep. um, because there wasn't that trust in government. People thought, you know, uh, is this going to continue? Is there going to be uh, that uh, that three year commitment from from government, or are they going to cut us cut us off at the knees at, at some point? And you know, we talked to uh, we talked to the people in the provincial staff who are running the program. We felt comfortable enough to recommend this to to people in the community for whom it, it might be a good uh, a good income source and who are willing to help really uh, uh, demonstrate how this could be an important social policy of the 21st century. Um, so there was definitely on the part of the participants uh, the the uh, commitment and uh, contractual obligation on their part. They were going to provide information on how they were doing on the pilot. They were going to answer surveys, and uh, they made that commitment. The government did as well, and and so well, I so did candidate four. Let's let's <laughs> underscore that again too, because yeah, he was asked about this and said, "Yes, I'll let the program continue." That was before he got elected. Yeah, not on, on on two occasions during the election as well, and 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 so you know, I, I think the government is arguing, well, we can't be we can't be held to promises made during the election. Well, what kind of precedent is that to set? People have uh, you know have enough bad feelings towards politics as it is. Um, we can't we can't make this type of activity and and this type of behavior commonplace. Um, let's hold people to their word, and if they happen to be politicians running for office, let's hold them to their word as well. Stay tuned. Uh, this continues for the rest of the week. Uh, the uh, judges will most likely just uh, reserve their decision, so we may not hear for another day or two. Tom, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Tom Cooper from the uh, Poverty for uh, Roundtable, Roundtable rather, for Poverty Reduction, and that case uh, will continue. It may well end up in civil court, too, as a lawsuit, and... Uh, uh, as I say in previous conversations we've had with Mike Perry from uh, the Lindsay Peterborough area, he says, that's the road they want to go down. That's the road we'll go to. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We continue our uh, Meet the City Council features and spotlight on City Council. A few weeks ago, we had to three of the uh, newly elected city councillors on different parts of the board, uh, city rather, uh, as we go through the budget process. And uh, we're pleased to welcome two more with us here in studio today. Uh, Esther Pauls, who is uh, the Ward 7 Councillor, a new Councillor. Good to see you again, Esther. Thanks Thank for coming you. in. Thank you. Thank you for And uh, Veteran Councillor for Ward 5, Chad Collins. Good to see you, Chad. Yeah, Thanks for coming in here today. I know it's a busy time for you guys, and I appreciate you taking some time to come in here. Uh, I want to talk budgets, first of all, because that's what you guys are up to your yeah. knees in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the capital budget is passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's a budget that, for those that don't understand the differentiation, really kind of looks after itself, because you already know where your priorities are and what mm-hmm. projects uh, staff recommending. That's the stuff you're going to build, basically, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, we have a 10-year plan that we work from. It's fairly fluid, and so one of the criticisms, I think, that councils leveled over the last number of years is that there's always a, a lot of new projects year over year, so as we try to gravitate towards a uh, multi-year budget process that's 
that's in keeping with council's vision and a plan. Um, we're, it's 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 a ten year process, but there's always surprises, Bill. And so you know, you and I have talked about some of the escarpment issues and and flooding issues that we've had to deal with. But we're trying to gravitate to a two or three year plan so that there's some consistency, so the community knows in terms of what's on the horizon as it relates to roads or rec center improvements or libraries. It's a very comprehensive list and there's a lot of planning that goes into it. For staff, it, it's an all year process. As soon as we passed it the other day, there are our finance staff are now already working on the uh, 2020 process and then ca- council will end up seeing that uh, bits and pieces of it uh, in the fall of this year and, and then uh, as we are now, we'll be into the heavy budget process uh, late in the year. But you don't rubber stamp it, though. Even the capital project, because staff will say, this is the stuff that we want to do. And you know most of these projects mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. But every now and then, there'll be something that pops up that say, look, at you know, this this is kind of important. And I remember one of the first years we were there, mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, the Riverdale Community Center. Which That's had right. been shoved down the list, shoved down the list, and we finally said, "Look, at th- this yes. neighborhood really needs this." And yeah. you and, and Fred was the uh, city councilor at that time, Fred Eisenberger, yeah. and uh, and you convinced, "Yeah, let's do this." Well, now the Dominic Agostino Community Center, correct? But I look back on that. I was just driving by there the other day, and I thought that, that was we did the right thing. I yeah. mean, that has really enhanced that community, and and, it? and uh, it's due for uh, an expansion. So it's mm-hmm. on the books for 2020, 2021. It'll be the first rec center that has uh, affordable housing on it, Bill, in, in yeah. the province and maybe the country. And so we're trying to make better use of city properties. And so I asked uh, that as part of that expansion, we look at building affordable housing units for seniors on top, good fit there. And of course, it sits on school board property. So it's a good yeah. use of really public assets. And um, we need permission still, I think, from the ministry, the education ministry, to make that happen. I, I don't see that being a, a hurdle or a stumbling block. And so by 2021, 2022, we'll see uh, an expanded rec center there in the Riverdale neighborhood with a number of seniors living on top who are in need of affordable housing. Esther, you're not new to, to yeah. business and to <laughs> numbers and business plans. You're very successful in business, of course, and have been for many, many years. Yes. But uh, th- these are big numbers. I mean, when you get a look at right, you guys are doing the operating budget right now. Exactly. They're big numbers. And that's why I actually I'm glad that I have Chad beside me. He's like a dinosaur. He's been there. How long? I think that was a I'll take that as a backhand. <laughs> but it's great. And when you asked me to come, I thought, I'm honored. I'm honored that I'm here uh, to learn the past, what has happened. And I actually had a meeting, uh, wanting to have a meeting with Chad to see what happened well, here, in the have past. It now. Mm-hmm. Have it in the past, so but we the, could the thing move with, on the future. The thing with operating budget, though, is is that's as we say, that's the, yep. the, the big number. That's the one that you the guys huge. have to wrestle with every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's salaries, that's benefits, that's uh, the operating costs, right. turning the lights on, running the machinery, et cetera, right. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, those costs never go down, do they? They don't, <laughs> and that's why we need to look at the future, but it's good always to look at the past so the future you know what to do. And that's what I'm starting from now, looking what the future holds. It's it's a difficult enterprise, really, because I, I know that people don't want taxes to go up. I mean, every time when you guys knock on doors, everybody says, lower my taxes. Uh, but at the same time, there's this uh, gnawing little thing called cost of living. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it costs more to, to drive a, a city truck than it did last year. It costs more to turn the lights on than it did last year. And, and I know that every year that your staff will come back and say, look, it, to do exactly what you did last year is going to cost this much more this year simply because of rising costs. Mm-hmm. And, and you guys have a decision to make. It's either just raise them that way that much or you've got to find efficiency someplace else. Exactly. And I think, Bill, you know, when people pay their tax bill, they want to make sure that when that money arrives at City Hall, that's well spent. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's, you know, investments made in the community and there's a return on those investments. We've struggled, uh, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years as we watched through the 80s and the 90s, many of our major employers leave the city for other parts of the world. Um, we've struggled to um, 
to 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 uh, pass a competitive tax rate. So we're always in competition with our neighbors in terms of attracting new businesses. Hamilton, for a number of years, because of the exodus of those companies, we were in a very challenging situation. And over the last, uh, I'd say, four to six years now, we've had some of the lowest, I think, be behind uh, Windsor, we've had some of the lowest tax increases uh, in the province. Mm -hmm. And this year will be no different. We're hovering just over 3% at this point in time. You know, there were days 10 to, uh, sorry, there were days 10 to 15 years ago where we had, we started in the 13, 12% range and we had to w whittle our way down. And, um, you know, Mike Zagarek and his finance staff have done tremendous work over the last number of years. And we're now at a situation where we're starting the budget process in the 3% range. And I think that's good for us from a competitive perspective as it relates to trying to attract new business. But it's all, there's also an affordability issue. There's seniors trying to stay in their homes. Um, we're, we're trying to attract new people to, to live and invest here in, in, in Hamilton. And so there's a lot that goes into not just, um, you know, looking at what the tax increase is going to be because all, that, all of that is related to providing services. Mm -hmm. A big part of that, though, is uh, related to economic development and ensuring that whatever we pass is something that, um, you know, we're not going to scare away or discourage people from trying to make an investment in our community. But the challenge, Esther, has got to yeah. be remarkable because this is not a Hamilton problem. This is a North American problem. Every city is facing challenges. And, and you hear this on the news, oh. Esther. There are cities that are laying off firefighters and exactly. police officers and city staffers. Mm -hmm. and we're not there yet, but no. I mean, it's and it's a balancing act to try to find that. It sure like, is. But I want to let you know that the people I've talked to, even door to door before I got elected, said, I don't mind paying taxes. Just tell me what other services what are we doing with that money and people don't mind matter of fact I had a lady say I would pay an extra $34 if the city would uh, do the sidewalks and I and I called her back and I said now we will talk about that but I think I'd rather spend it on roads or something like that we we just had a good conversation but honestly people at Hamilton realizes that the services are so important and if it means a better road few dollars more on taxes, we, they will do it. That's why I think uh, uh, people of Hamilton uh, are saying, yeah, we're paying high, maybe high taxes, but let us know what you're spending it on. And we're here to tell them. Well, yeah, but the whole thing about municipal government, though, uh, and I don't need to tell you this, Chad, obviously, mm -hmm. and, and Esther, I know you're learning it out yeah. by day. Is, is that you're right there. You're in, in people's faces. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, federal and provincial politicians, God bless them, maybe knock on somebody's door once every four years at election right. time, and you don't see a whole lot of them in the meantime. No. And I would venture anybody who's complained about taxes, and that should be all of us, uh, first question is, say, how much do you pay in federal tax? Right. Uh, I don't know. How do you, <laughs> how, what's your, but you know your municipal tax bill, certainly. Mm -hmm. But you see the services that you're getting for, too. Right. And, and you're readily accessible. You're a phone call away, or, hey, they can meet you at City Hall or wherever the case might be. Uh, but it's a different animal, isn't it? And that, that's one of the biggest de debate issues always, Chad, is uh, people don't know what they pay in federal tax because it's taken off your paycheck before you even get it. Mm -hmm. But exactly. after you, here's your take-home pay, and then the city says, okay, now we need money for this. And yeah. and there's an accountability situation here where people are saying, all right, fine, I'll, I'll pay this, but you better show me what I'm getting for. Yeah, it, and it's a very transparent pro process, yeah. as you just alluded to, Bill. I mean, you get your tax bill... Um, through the year and you see how much you're paying there and there's obviously the water charges on top of that and when you're looking at HST and PST and certainly your income tax and all those mm -hmm. things put together municipalities receive the least amount of tax Thanks. dollars of all three levels of government and we're always trying to fight for our fair the share. The pie chart, everybody loves yep. pie yeah. charts and I was mentioning this on the show yesterday exactly. one loony which is a hundred cents, yeah. seven cents of that goes to municipal taxes. That seven cents, the rest of it goes yeah. to the federal and the provincial. You guys are getting ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we're so waiting. We're waiting. Well, still. we're waiting for yeah. the province and yeah. federal to work together. 
even our mayor right now is in Ottawa, yeah. I think, talking. So I think it's great. We have to be together on this. We can't do it alone. And uh, and unlike the other levels of government, we can't run deficits. We can certainly borrow, and we we can we you know there's we can um, take on debt. And Hamilton has still a very one of the best credit ratings of municipalities in the province. But unlike the other levels of government, you know, we don't have year-over-year deficits. And I think that's a good thing. There's fin- financial and fiscal restraints for municipalities. But as Esther said, and you've alluded to, Bill, in, in some of your other programs, uh, you know, we, we're just looking for our fair share. And, and my concern, and you just covered this with your last segment with uh, with Tom Cooper on, is that, you know, we've seen a very unpredictable provincial government in the early days. And my concern is, as we had to deal with in the late 90s, um, uh, you know, possible downloading that may be coming over the next year or two, legislative changes that have a negative impact on municipalities. You and I talked uh, extensively about the cap-and-trade money that yeah. the city lost for housing. Mm-hmm. So there are all kinds of unknowns on the horizon. Um, federal government, different scenario. They're going through the election process, and we're waiting to see some substantial investments, not just in Hamilton, but elsewhere. But on the provincial side, I think it's still a wild card, and the jury's still out in terms of what's in store for municipalities uh, over the next couple of years. There are some big issues here. I know that uh, it's it's relatively early in the year, of course, but you're you're well into the budget process, as we mentioned already, uh, wrestling with the uh, the operating budget. Uh, you've already had to make some pretty important decisions. Uh, the, the commitment to the Grey Cup, by the way, congratulations. Thank I think you. you guys did the right thing on yes. that. Uh, and, and, you know, fingers crossed that we're going to win that. Uh, you and I were both around in 96, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a great time for a great cup. It wasn't a great time for the CFL, but that that's changed. It's going to be a, a great event in case yes. if Hamilton gets that. Mm-hmm. But there's some other big ones on the road. Uh, one of them is, of course, uh, you need a city manager. Chris mm-hmm. Murray, I was just watching the, the highlights from Toronto News the other day, and there's Chris Murray sitting there at the budget table. Mm-hmm. He's now the city manager in, the, in Toronto, and I hope he does a great job there. Mike Zigarik is acting, but there's a process here. Uh, walk us through this, how City Council is going to deal with this. Traditionally, Bill, we've used uh, the committee chairs um, to act as the selection committee, and, and you and I went through that um, just before amalgamation yeah. when we had to choose uh, between the when the region was disbanded and we were merged uh, city and region together. And then again, we went through that in amalga- through amalgamation and then we had a couple of city managers that were with us for a brief period of time and then left after amalgamation. And so this, the process we've used is essentially the committee chairs and uh, we were in a, a little bit of a unique situation this time around because uh, the committee hadn't been struck yet and the election has come and gone. And so there's a, a new group of people um, that we've chosen, as Esther knows, uh, at the beginning of the term. It'll be uh, uh, currently the process w- will include uh, myself, uh, Councillor Ferguson, Councillor Pearson, Councillor Marula, and of course the mayor is part of that as well. And that process has served us well. We, um, you know, we, as you just alluded to, we we hired Chris Murray through that process. And um, and we have a very talented management team. We're not uh, certainly, I think, excluding anyone from the from outside the organization in terms of applying for that position. But I can say with great confidence that uh, we have a very uh, talented management team, and, and every one of our general managers are capable of being the next. Now, are you using a headhunter? I mean, because this, are, is, this yes, is a, we, this is a national search, right? Correct. Yes. So and so the the, the headhunters that we hire. Uh, are in tune with the municipal field and the municipal sector. They know uh, who's poised to to make that next uh, jump up to the city manager level, uh, and and so they have a good feel for for individuals across not just Ontario but across the country who might be interested in in working for a city like Hamilton. You said yeah. on election night, Esther, when uh, when you came on our show at City Hall that night, uh, that obviously you have some very strong opinions on many of the key issues. Yes, I do. But there were some that you said, look, I want to sit and listen and learn, and I'll make my determination. One of them was, was LRT. Mm-hmm. Now, you haven't had a whole lot of debate about that, but no. it's still in the news. It's always it's, there. Yes, it ha- is. Has, have, have you coalesced that, that m- mindset yet? Bill, I've been honestly reading so much about for and against. Mm-hmm. And I want to tell you, it's 
really in the middle. Uh, I have constituents calling me now still saying, make sure you promise no LRT. And I said, I, I never promise no LRT. I will study the issue. Just like the marijuana issue, I studied the issue before, you know, I said yes or no, you know. Matter of fact, I did change my mind a few times, you know, yes one time, no. But you have to know the main issues. So with the LRT, I'm still reading. I'm still uh, asking my fellow counselors that, that have been in that process for the last, what, Chad? 10 years? Mm -hmm. it's a ch so I am not aware. I am aware that it already has passed. Am I right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it already has passed, who am I to say, no, I'm going against if it's already passed? I just want to say, how much is it going to cost? And second of all, I want to make sure our premier comes up with the money. We have not had it written. We have not had um, the premier come to Hamilton even to talk to the mayor about it. So for me to say yes or no, I would just, um, it, it wouldn't be right. That's one of the things I think everybody who gets elected to council, back to my experience, yours uh, and, and mm -hmm. everyone else at, at, in those inaugural years, uh, because you're wrestling with the idea that says, okay, this is the way I feel about this. I got to stick to that. You don't. Uh, there's, no, there's no shame in changing your mind with new information. As, as Churchill said, those that don't change their mind change nothing. Exactly. Uh, and and, and, yeah. and that, this, is, this is a moving target. Right. It is moving. And that's why I rely also on my fellow counselors that have been there. Why did you say yes? Why are you saying no? Just get their feel because they've been dealing with this 10 years and we need to move forward. I just want the city to know that Hamilton needs to move forward whatever it decides. Whether it's buses, whether it's LRT, we want to be a moving city. What about the reliance on those other levels of government, Chad? And you've uh, talked to some of the challenges right now, and the, the fact that only seven cents out of every tax dollar goes to the municipality, mm -hmm. uh, which is not nearly enough. And, and Hamilton and every other city in this country right now is in a in a uh, infrastructure deficit situation. That's why the mayors are in Ottawa right now talking mm -hmm. to the federal government. Uh, but while that's happening, you can't just put the, the whole button on. You guys have got to move forward in so many different areas. Yeah, in many areas we've been left to our own devices. And so we're trying to find creative ways and means in which to make up for those deficits, Bill, without, or without provincial mm -hmm. or federal assistance. You and I have talked extensively about housing. Last term of council, we we invested fifty million dollars of our hydro dividend money into into housing, and so that uh, that was you know something we haven't seen across the province or quite frankly across the country in terms of municipal investments. And we're just hoping that our our, our provincial and federal partners come yeah. to the table with a plan and and with some resources. I think you know Esther highlighted just recently. Um, just now with her last response, the uncertainty in terms of a lot of question marks in terms of where the province is on LRT. There's lots of question marks right now in terms of where the federal government is and even the provincial government on housing. So it's hard to go through a multi-year uh, budget plan and, and come up with a plan to address our infrastructure deficit when you don't know mm -hmm. what the partners, uh, the other government partners are going to contribute to those plans. And so we, we inch along in many of those areas, you know, we've talked about roads, we've talked about yeah. housing, we've talked about the LRT. There's every budget uh, book that we get, um, that, you know, the, almost the first paragraph says that without further enhancements and contributions from the province and the federal government, Hamilton will continue to fall behind with its infrastructure uh, repairs and, and, and the deficit will get larger. And so we're, we're hoping 
that uh, the province and the Fed live up to their commitment. You know, the Prime Minister has promised uh, housing resources. Uh, but I'm, that's part of the problem. Yeah. Even when they make an announcement, and, and you'll see this, yeah. Esther, the money does not just flow the next flow. day. Yeah, it's sometimes right. year, two, three years yep. later. I mean, right. they talked about housing money. The minister's been here twice in the yes. last six months talking yep. about it. We haven't seen a check yet. Yep. No, and you've right. a, you asked him, you were point blank with yeah. your questions. Uh, you know, will we see this for maintenance? Will we see this for new unit? Absolutely. You know, the, the announcement we made in the fall of 217 will address those issues. And Hamilton still waits for, oh, I, to be clear, uh, they did stop by last week and they made the investment for the YWCA. I think that was a great yep. announcement. Yep. But it's nowhere near what they promised when they made those original funding announcements in terms of what they promised municipalities across the country. Any surprises but, at the time you've been well, on the council? Yes. Uh, oh, surprises, uh, like um, Chad was saying, with the federal and province, what they promise and what they are not delivering. But I heard today maybe the federal is investing maybe on infrastructure for the cities. So uh, it would be great because we need it. We need roads mm. and all that. And uh, I got about 30 seconds left, yes. and you wanted to talk about an oh, initiative you've got up at yes, the Lime Ridge Mall. Yes, I do. I, on February 17th, at Lime Ridge Mall, we're going to have Meet Your Counselor, the two new ones, which is John Paul Denko mm. and Astro Pauls, of course. And we're going to walk maybe half hour, 40 minutes, whatever, and then we're going to give you coffee. And then we'll have some city staff joining us, and you could ask any question you want. So if you are interested in knowing more about Hamilton, and especially Ward 7 and Ward 8 or all the mountain, please come out. Go on the Hamilton. Hamilton website, and um, and I'm going to actually deliver 500 special deliver on door to door for people to come out. So February 17th, that's yes. a Sunday at Lime Ridge Mall. Uh, guys, I know you've got budget meetings. I, mm -hmm. I know you got to get back to City Hall. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Great to have you in here. Thanks, Bill. Thank Good thank luck. You. Thank you. Forward. Thank Esther you. Pauls and uh, Chad Collins. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another twist in the uh, U.S.-Canada-Chinese uh, government uh, kerfuffle that's going on over the last little while. Of course, this all started, uh, well, some weeks ago when uh, the CFO of uh, Huawei, uh, Men Zhang Wu, was uh, arrested in Vancouver by Canadian officials at the request of U.S. officials. And we've gone through the reasons why. It's a treaty. It's nobody, you know, kissing up to somebody. It's it's a, a treaty obligation. It's a legal obligation that Canada had to the United States in, in a reciprocal agreement like that. But anyway, that's done. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Canada, of course, took an awful lot of heat for that and continues to take an awful lot of heat. Uh, part of the collateral damage was John McCallum, who couldn't really seem to keep his mouth shut and, and eventually was removed from his post as the ambassador uh, to China. But there are economic and trade implications to this. I mean, uh, coincidentally, and maybe not coincidentally, uh, Canada and China had started preliminary discussions about some sort of a trade deal. Uh, and now we find out that uh, the very same day that the American Justice Department is laying charges against Huawei, and and some pretty significant charges, uh, their trade delegation, which includes, by the way, some some powerful hitters, Lighthizer, uh, Wilbur Ross, I mean, these are names that, uh, that we've heard, uh, Navarro, uh, that were deeply involved, of course, in the NAFTA negotiations, they're getting set to meet with the Chinese people about trying to cut a trade deal with them. So on the one hand, the Justice Department are labeling the Chinese government and Huawei as scoundrels, and uh, their trade delegation is actually trying to cut a deal with them. This is bizarre. Trying to get some sense on this, let's bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Is, is this unusual? I mean, we, 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 you got one arm of government that's at loggerheads with the government, like the Chinese, and at the same time, you say, okay, you guys go over there and see if you can cut a deal with them? 
Um, I'm going to give a provide a, a slightly different interpretation, um, and uh, that is uh, based on this this idea of the disruptor, which was developed by uh, just for interest purposes for everybody by Clayton Christensen, a business professor in the Harvard Business School, mm-hmm. and he wrote the classic book about ten years ago. And he was a career um, a person in the private sector. Uh, I think it was General Electric. He's an engineer. And then he wrote this book about disruptive innovation. And the word has really entered into the, uh, uh, our vocabulary ever since. And we talk about, you know, disruptors and disruptive behavior and so forth. Um, where I'm going with this is, and, and I'm not saying this in any way, shape, or form to condone or suggest that I admire or I'm a secret admirer of Donald Trump. I'm not. You know, his language is offensive. It's disgusting. He's racist. Okay, let's, let's get that out there and so we don't have to talk about it again. But I do believe that one day when the historians, the presidential historians, start to write the history of the Trump administration, they're going to, and especially trade relations, they're going to date uh, it to the change, a massive change, the reordering of the world, a la Metternich in the 1800s, and a la Kissinger in the mid-1900s. They're going to date it to the Trump administration. And what I mean by this, I'm not trying to get flowery or, you know, uh, what I'm saying is the, we're going through a fundamental change. The collapse, I mean, the, the Soviet Union only collapsed 15 years ago, which we think is a long time ago. When you start studying geopolitical history, I mean, 15 years ago is a blink. It's a flash in the pan. And so this world that's emerging is emerging out of the ashes, if I can put it, of the collapse of the old uh, uh, world uh, structure in the 20th century, which was the Soviet Union versus the United States, which took over from England as the world superpower. That world collapsed with the Soviet Union's collapse. And now China rose... um, Almost simultaneously, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and China started to rise and take off in 1992-93, when Deng Xiaoping gave a very, very famous speech, which I have read in English translation, and said, basically, you know, in 1948, we made a huge mistake with the Communist Revolution. We shut down our relationship with the West, and he said, and then we didn't allow contact with Western technology, Western countries, Western know-how, etc. He says, we're now going to fix that. And that's when China reopened. And that was the kickstart of this emergence of the new global order. The Americans are now responding. I mean, they've been responding for the last few years, but they're really responding under the Trump administration. And he's a disruptive force because he's saying the status quo of the last 15 years is unacceptable. What was that status quo? Well, we let China join the WTO in in 2001, and then they promised to respect the rule of law and respect the rules of the WTO, but they don't. And they cheat. They cheat. There's no question about it. They were cheating on currency by suppressing the currency to give their companies a competitive advantage. Uh, they suppressed the wages to give their wages to give their companies a price competitive advantage. They stole Western technology, um, and they uh, engaged in massive protectionism at home. So uh, they stacked the game in their favor to in order to grow, 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 grow. I mean, there's nothing nefarious about this. There's 1.4 billion people in China, 1.3 billion. And in the last 15 years, large numbers, some 20 to 25 million per year, were moving from the rural to the urban. Now, when you move from the rural, the countryside, where you can be self-sufficient, albeit desperately poor, you move into the city, everything changes. You know, you've got to live in a high-rise building, you've got to have a job. 
And I'm not trying to justify what the Chinese are doing. I'm trying to explain it. Mm -hmm. So they needed to start to grow, 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 grow. And so they did all these things, which we call cheating, which it was, to help their companies grow, 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 to create more and more jobs, to hire this 20 to 25 million people a year, every year, moving into the city. Trump has now said, enough is enough. Essentially, he's saying to China, no, stop right there. We want a new relationship, and we're going to proceed on two fronts. We're going to negotiate with you for sure. We're over there. We're going to talk to you about all kinds of trade deals and what we can do, or trade uh, framework, what you can do, what we can do. At the same time, to show you that we mean business, we are going to sue those companies and those people in those companies that we believe are cheating. So we're going to pursue a two-pronged approach to bring you to the table to force you to compromise and create a new global order. What they're doing is literally... What Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Stalin did in 1944 and 1945 at Yalta, they created the New World Order out of the ashes of World War II. Mm -hmm. That was the world that created the IMF, the United Nations itself, the uh, World Bank, etc., etc. And that world order continued for the next until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now what Trump is going to do down, this may shock a lot of people, but I don't. I think the historians are going to be kinder to Donald Trump than, than we are today, all of us, because we're so offended, understandably so, by his offensive and disgusting racist, sexist talk, which is just unacceptable today. But the, the historians are looking at the bigger strategic issues and saying, what did he do? And I think he's going to get credit for being one of the architects of the new global order, badly flawed man who nonetheless did some good. For those who are really interested in this, there's a new column out today in the New York Times by Ross Duthat, who's the conservative columnist for the New York Times, or he's perceived to be the conservative columnist. And he writes about the emerging Trump doctrine, which is to contain, constrain China, not defeat it, not go to war with it militarily, but to try to reestablish a more level playing field between the U.S. and China. There are, there's no question there's only two world uh, leaders and uh, superpowers in the new emerging world order. I mean, anyone who suggests that it's any other country other than those two just isn't reading. I mean, they're the two largest economies in the world. Uh, you know, U.S. around two, 20 trillion, China around uh, 12 trillion, expressed in U.S. dollars, growing at three times roughly faster than the U.S. Uh, still very poor on a per person basis, but growing like crazy, as we all know. And I believe for the next, for the 21st century, at least as far as I can see the 21st century, for the next 80 years, it's going to be dominated by this relationship between the U.S. and China. So what they're fighting over now is what is the rules of the game, what are going to be. Just as you have rules of the game in hockey or in football, you know, there's rules. You, can, you can't grab the face mask and, you know, things like that. They're going to be establishing rules, and there's only really two countries that are going to be uh, creating this agreement. It's not like the United Nations in 1945, where there were lots of countries sitting around the table once they agreed to have a U.N. This is going to be a two-country party, a two-country agreement. And we're, the rest of us are going to be bystanders, very interested bystanders. We have a vital interest in what's going to happen, but we are not the driving force. This is what Mr. Trudeau, unfortunately, did not understand in his naivete and wanted to lecture the, the Chinese and other countries on human rights and on gender and environment and labor and, and women's issues. He doesn't realize 
we are not in the driver's seat. We are not one of the two global superpowers. And it doesn't matter how much we pound our chest about how virtuous we are, it doesn't change anything. There's two countries in the world. It's China and it's the United States. And, and, and what Trump is doing is not trying to go to war with China. He wants to make sure that the deal is not stacked against the United States, as it has been for the last 15 years, with serial, consistent, comprehensive cheating by the Chinese. But it, uh, let's, let's run with that theory for just a second, Ian, and, and I think there's a lot of credibility to what you're suggesting here. Uh, that adds credence to, to the, the mindset a lot of people have that let's look at the arrest of Meng was really politically motivated. It had nothing to do, yes, they, they may or yeah. may not be guilty of this, and, and that will, yeah. I guess, come out in the wash if, if in yes. fact, this ever goes to trial. But it's a bargaining chip. I, I, Bill, I said that from the get-go, um, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to suggest that they, they, they were trumped up or fraudulent charges. They weren't. But, you know, there's the, the prosecutors in every country, we know this, have a great deal of discretion. They have discretion in Canada. You know, uh, you can choose to lay charges against somebody or not. And, I mean, you, the crown prosecutor, or the district attorney, as they're called in the United States, there's an enormous amount of prosecutorial discretion. And the fact that they decided to less press charges against this particular person, the daughter of the Chinese Steve Jobs and their crown jewel called Huawei, I said, you know, this is not a coincidence. Of course not. It's of course it's not. And it is part of this grand uh, negotiations between the two world superpowers, this global dance or game of chess between these two. Not to suggest that they, 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 these events didn't happen, but the, the, uh, you know, the violations I'm talking about that they allege to have, uh, have occurred with Iran. As I've said before, I, I taught in Iran for, t- for 10 years, from, t- from uh, 1998 to 2008. I flew in there and taught in a Carlton MBA. And I was astonished as I traveled around the country in between teaching at the number of Western companies in there. And I thought, I thought there were serious uh, sanctions. And I saw American companies in there like Caterpillar. And I'd say to the Iranians, these are professors who spoke English, and I'd say, what are all these German and, you know, American companies doing here? And they laughed and they said, oh, they just buy off the, uh, they, they, they pay people to, uh, to get around the sanctions. And um, so my, my point is, is that those sanctions were very leaky. They've always been leaky and not aggressively prosecuted. They, they were only prosecuted when there was some particular self-interest for prosecuting them. But that's, that's part of the hypocrisy, though, isn't it, Ian? Yes, yes, uh, yes. Here the U.S. saying, we're going to slap the Chinese right now because of, of these alleged uh, you know, uh, malfeasances. But they're doing it, too. American companies sure. are just as involved in this. I, I, my speculation is, I talked about this on the show the other day, I, I don't think Meng's going to see the inside of a U.S. courtroom. I think she'll probably be put on a plane, but it's all going to be part of a deal between the two countries. I, I believe that deeply. In fact, let me go a little bit one step further. Under Canadian law, and this is an act of parliament, no person can be extradited, even after the courts have ruled, until the Minister of Justice signs a certificate or a piece of paper or, or a piece of authority. In other words, it's not optional. They can't duck and say, ah, you know, it's kind of controversial. I think, I think I'll pass on this one. They are required to approve the extradition order, just as Hassan Diab, who was extradited to France, had to be signed off by the um, Minister of Justice. And I do not believe, at the end of the day, that the Canadian government, whether it was a liberal government or a conservative government, so this is nonpartisan, I do not believe 
that a Canadian government minister of, uh, of justice is going to sign an extradition order to send the 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 uh, Chinese daughter of the Chinese Steve Jobs to the United States. I don't think it's going to happen. Now, fortunately, it sounds now from the Americans and they just in the last forty eight hours, they sure sound like they're willing to talk about a deal. Also, so that will save us. You know, well, that's because Ian, they put the big hitters. I mean, Lighthizer, uh, yeah, Wilbur yeah. Ross, uh, Navarro. I mean, the, the, those are the top three uh, in, yeah. as far as Trump's concerned when it comes to international trade. Those are the guys that are going to be sitting across the table from the Chinese. So obviously, yeah. they're there to. It, this is let's make a deal. Uh, absolutely. There's, I mean, there's just no no doubt in that. To me, no doubt to me that in that an, an uh, assessment or interpretation. I mean, Trump wants a new relationship, just as they sat around Yalta in the Ukraine in 1945 at a big round table. I've seen the photographs. You know, uh, Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt sat around this big round table at the Yalta Conference. And that's where they literally, literally carved up Europe and said, okay, Russia, you, you the Soviet Union, you get Poland, uh, you get Romania, you get Ukraine, uh, but we get Greece, uh, you know, we get West Germany, you know, that sort of thing. Well, what they're doing is that he wants a deal to carve up the world, and I'm guessing, now I'm really speculating here, but I don't think it's far-fetched, I think that they're going to carve up the world into two broad spheres of influence. Now, I'm not suggesting an iron curtain or a steel curtain or any kind, but there's already, I mean, we all know Western Europe is allied, and Canada and South Korea and Japan are allied with the United States, Mm -hmm. that we call the West, the Western countries. And more and more of the developing countries are increasingly allying themselves with China. And so I think we're going to end up with this sort of, you know, countries that will be uh, partners, junior partners with the U.S. or junior partners of China. And, and so it calls into question whether or not we in Canada are able, will be able, under this emerging new order, to have it bo- both ways, have our cake and eat it. Can we be partnered with the U.S. and have a separate uh, comprehensive trade agreement uh, with China? I'm starting to think that that's not going to happen because it's going to be, you know, you've got to make choices in this new world order. You know, who are you with? Are you with the Chinese or are you with the U.S.? And I think it's moving in that direction. i got a minute left here. I've got to ask you, I guess, maybe one of the most important questions if uh, this scenario starts to unfold. How can you trust the Chinese? I mean, a, a year ago, Trump thought he had a deal with Kim Jong-un about disarmament, and, and Kim's just, you know, he's, he's waving his middle finger at him right now. He just went ahead and did whatever the heck he wanted. The Chinese are known for doing the exact same thing. Yes, but, Bill, I would distinguish the two. I mean, he's just a, a Kim Jong-un, the North Korean guy, is just your garden variety thug in an extraordinarily poor country. It's one of the poorest countries in the world, according to the World Bank, yeah, yeah. in terms of income per capita. The Chinese are playing a very, very, very different game. They are a global superpower, and they know it. And they know they're going to become bigger and stronger as the years uh, unfold. And so they're playing a very different game, whereas the guy in North Korea is just trying to keep his, to stay alive. In other words, not be knocked off by somebody, uh, whether inside North Korea or by his own partners within the Chinese government. He's just trying to stay alive. He's just playing a game of naked self-personal interest. The Chinese are playing a geopolitical grand uh, uh, vision for the 21st century, 
and they're trying to create a new role, a very important role for China, where they will be a co-equal partner with the United States. They may want world dominance. There are American uh, thinkers uh, in foreign policy who make this argument, know the Chinese want to dominate the world. I'm not so certain, uh, because I don't think the United States is simply going to go away when it's the largest economy in the world, with you know some of the best universities and the most innovative companies in the world. I don't think they're just going to just disappear. And so I think that, uh, that it, certainly in the medium term over the next 50, 70 years, China wants co-equal status, if you will, in this new global order. High-stakes economic poker. Uh, Ian yeah. will watch as it unfolds. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Ian Lee from uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.